Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Today we're going to be in John chapter 6. And, and while today we're not going to be speaking a whole lot about the resurrection per se, it is the resurrection that, you know, that empowers everything for us. But uh, as we were singing, I couldn't help but think about how, how the Lord establishes places in our life. And he establishes our, our homes and who belong there. God establishes our work uh, and where we go. Uh, he establishes our social spaces and taking opportunities for places that we go just, just to relate to one another. And, and in the Old Testament, God established a place of worship. And this was the fourth place that God created. So if you wanted to sacrifice to the Lord, if you wanted to give to the Lord, if you wanted to pray, uh, praise the Lord, if you wanted to pray to the Lord, you had to go to this fourth place. And so when, when Jesus resurrected, or when he was crucified, rather, uh, the veil of the temple, you know, was rent in two. And so now we have access to that fourth place. And in, in fact, we have daily access, regular, ongoing, present access to that place. And now that place gets to come into our homes with us. And that place gets to go to work with us. And that place gets to go into our social spaces as well. And so the crucifixion of Jesus opens up the life of Jesus in everywhere we go. And now the, the faith isn't a place you go to. It's, it's who we are. And I think sometimes we forget that and we keep driving, you know, we, we go to church and, you know, when we're there, we think about Jesus or when there, when we open up our Bible, it's there, we sing our songs, it's there, we read our Bibles, but boy, there's so much more to Christianity than that. And that's kind of the essence of what Jesus is getting to in John chapter six. This is a, a, a very huge event in the ministry of Jesus. Verse two says there was a great crowd of people following him. Verse five said he saw a great crowd of people coming toward him. Verse seven, Philip said to Jesus, it would take more than a half of a year's wage to buy enough bread so that every individual could have one bite Verse 9, the disciples questioned, how in the world are five loaves and two fishes ever going to feed so many people? So the scripture is very clear that the odds are stacked against Jesus here concerning the crowds. This, this situation is on everybody's mind except for Jesus. It's unmanageable. In verse 10, we find that there are about, about 5,000 men sat down to eat. Now, I'm sure everybody else did too, but they counted the men. Now, understandably, the disciples doubted whether or not they could feed them all, but Jesus knew what to do. And so he gave thanks, and the disciples distributed as much food as the people needed. Uh, you remember just as in, in Exodus, when the great I Am provided, Jesus here is providing for his people. Uh, but this miracle is not just about Providing. That's only half of the story. Is this, this, this 
story, this narrative is designed to say something more about Jesus than just simply what he can offer us at any given moment of need. Now, the, those who experienced it in real time thought that that was the conclusion of the matter. Wow, Jesus always provides what we need, what we want. But verse 14 shows that they do recognize Jesus to be a great prophet. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. But seeing Jesus as only a prophet falls very far short of all that he truly is. They're, they're still, I mean, they're, they're seeing him, but they're far away from truly understanding him. And although we've changed our clothes a few times in the last 2,000 years, we are not much different in our understanding of who Jesus is. We see ourselves as the people of God because of our fathers or because of God's promises, but not necessarily because we have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's, it's uh, I am a Christian because of a decision that I make, but not necessarily the life that we live or a relationship that we have. How is a person saved? If you ask very many people, are you a Christian? Most people will say, I hope so. Are you going to go to heaven? I hope so. Or if you ask just any random person, what do you have to do to go to heaven? You will hear things even in churches, things such as, well, you have to be good to people. You have to love people. You have to love God, right? You have to be kind to people. Don't judge people. We've created Christianity into a, a rhythmic list of cliched statements that we can wear on hats or T-shirts. But what Scripture says is there is only one way, and that is to have a personal, ongoing Rhythmic relationship with Jesus Christ. Be like Jesus. Believe in Jesus. You know, it's a, it's a slow fade. When we begin to believe, approach God's truths and the truths revealed throughout all of Scripture, that where it becomes where, where we just go to the Scripture for help in any given circumstance. Uh, or provision, or we find ourselves in a need of something and we start taking our faith a little more seriously. And, and listen, as a pastor, it breaks my heart when I see people broken and they come to the Lord and once their need is mediated and met, they disappear again until the next need. We turn to Scripture for daily insights, daily advice, better attitudes, better relationships, better opportunities, better circumstances. We've failed to understand the gospel. And my fear is that many Christians are operating within a system of Christianity based on self-help. And many, many churches propagate and reduce the gospel down in as to how can you have better opportunities today. When our relationship with Jesus is the sum of our earthly needs and wants, we are not in a relationship with Jesus. When churches and Christian leaders use the truths of Scripture to only counsel your day but not drive your surrender, 
we begin to slip slowly. Nobody notices how quickly that slippage is until you begin to feel empty again. Scripture then begins to serve as a self-help book. We become the center of our own story, and God then begins to serve us. In fact, his greatest joy is to put a smile on your face. And without realizing it, we shift. We begin to make Jesus about someone who can do something for us rather than someone to build our life around. And if Jesus is anything but the cornerstone of our life, it ceases to be faith at all. People begin to believe that the purpose of religion is to have God as their helper. And while that is a, an incredible benefit, one who provides them with abundance and happiness, most likely through material possessions, most people qualify it that way, or maybe through some circumstantial change that they always have life in their favor. And when things are going well and there's a lot of comfort, God is good. In America, we live in a society spiritually marked. And I want you to listen to this very closely because I, I, I really believe that when we get to the end of time, and I, I also believe that we are there, but I believe that there's going to be a great falling away and nobody is going to intentionally fall away. It's going to be a slow slippage where we've convinced ourselves that there's a new truth, an easier truth. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Here's the five central tenets, and I want you to listen to these. I want you to listen close and see if these sound right. Really pay attention. Number one, God exists. He created and he ordered the world and he watches over human life on earth. Yes, I think we believe that one. You say, are you a Christian? Yeah, I believe in God. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. It's the summation of God's goal for us as taught in the Bible. And also, Christianity then is not differentiated from any other world religion. This is one of the reasons why even Christians would say, well, I really believe if you follow whatever it is that your heart, you know, after all, I mean, all religions are pretty much the same. Number three, the central goal of life then is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. If you don't feel good, then you're not trusting God enough. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in my life at all, or nor does he care about what I do in my daily life. He only exists to resolve a problem or remedy my pain. Number five, Good people go to heaven when they die. And here's the good news. You get to determine what good is. Now, I want you to notice that I, I, I think that by nature, most Christians today would say, I think, what's wrong with that? Just be good. Be nice. God exists. Yeah, you know, don't, don't get caught up. Don't be a fanatic. Don't be a weirdo. When you have problems, go to the Lord, and he's always going to put this cosmic smile on your face and make your problems go away. But this is a completely Jesusless belief system. And this is growing to be an American spirituality that has no need for a Savior because we no longer recognize sin. 
Sin is a bad day. Sin is a mistake. Sin is a I should have done better. Sin never crucifies Christ on the cross anymore. You hear it often, but it doesn't sound Christless when you hear it. It sounds right. God is good. Be good. Love God. Love people. Don't judge. Love wins. These become the mantra for American Christianity. And they sound so much like the gospel, but they're not enough. They're not enough. I've been to the temple where the Mormons worship, who now very slowly are becoming Christian. And Christians are embracing that. And you can walk around and you can read all of their verbiage, and it sounds so right. And yet feels so dark. Because of where they placed Jesus. You could, you could go to the temple in Salt Lake City and almost not be offended by what you hear or what you read. But it's so wrong. It's so unbiblical. But if we lose track of who Jesus is and the spirit that dwells within us, we will lose our ability to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is error. And we begin to say things like, well, that may be true for you, but that's not really my truth. It sounds like the gospel, and it's not incorrect. It's just incomplete. It's, it's the gospel without Jesus. We reduce our faith to how we feel about ourselves at any given moment. And slowly we begin to judge faith by ourselves. We begin to compare ourselves to each other. We begin to believe that God exists for us to make us happy. And before long, we judge God based upon our happiness or at least our potential for happiness. It's very prominent today. And if you don't deal with it, it's because you're not having these conversations in public. I deal with it almost daily. It's brought on by our selfishness, poor preaching in the pulpit. A lack of relationship to Jesus Christ. It does not address sin. It, I, I even hear Christians say that once you pray a prayer of faith, you never ever have to address sin again. In fact, it's faithless to ever bring up sin again. Because you're, it's, like, it's like you're not trusting that God forgives. And yet, throughout scripture, how many times do you see if you sin? If you sin, if you go on sinning, there is this idea that we, we need this regular reminder that we are not right with God by nature. Just because we prayed a simple prayer does not restore righteousness with us. It is an ongoing relationship with righteousness. Jesus Christ the righteous. When we, when we forget what Jesus died for, we will forget him altogether. We won't need him anymore. And I wonder how many of us like are desperate for Jesus in our daily life. No longer talk about eternity, no longer talk about hell, no longer talk about surrender, no longer talk about... And God's glory begins to be replaced by our happiness. I want you just to think about that. I want you to think about it in your daily life. I'm begging you to process that in your daily life. How much time do you spend on how you feel versus 
living for the glory of God, seeing and revealing the glory of God. And you'll begin to see how quickly we can slip to where life becomes about us. Jesus then has no place or no value. He only, he's only valued by what he does for us, not who he is. For many Christians, Jesus is irrelevant. We'd never say it. And many don't know it. But it's a slow fade. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus confronts and destroys this moralistic, therapeutic deism. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's three words I want to pull out of there real quick as we begin to unpack. Number one, bread. Bread is the central critical food item on the menu in Jesus's day. And Jesus here calls himself equal to survival. That's what he is saying. I am equal to survival. Number two, I am the bread of life. There's two Greek words that mean life. The first word, we're familiar with both of them in our, in our language. The first one is bios. It's where we get our word for life or biography or the summation of a person's existence. And that's what the word means. And then the second word is zoe, where we get the word first life, protozoa, for instance. C.S. Lewis says that bios is a person's physical life and zoe in Greek represents the spiritual life. The animated life, the, the, the thriving. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That's the zoe that Jesus came to put into our life. The, the thriving, the animation, the movement, the emotion. So here Jesus calls himself the zoe. more than just existence. And I also want to bring up the word believe. Jesus uses the word in Greek, pistuo. It means to have firm confidence in or to entrust oneself to another. Belief is truly proven. And, and everybody wants to know, do I believe enough? Well, belief is truly proven when you wholly give yourself to another. To trust your life with another. That's when you say, I really believe in you. Meaning, I could wilt right now and I trust that you can su support me and sustain me. So to receive the bread of God, you have to stop. You know, we, we think of believing meaning working. And I think what Jesus is saying in here, if you want to believe, stop working. Stop laboring. It cannot belong to you by your merit. You need to trust me. I am the bread of life. Verse 25, we'll go back just a little bit. Verse 25, and we'll begin reading here. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is the next day, right? Surprise, surprise. Jesus did exactly what they wanted. He fed them until the next time they get hungry and they have concerns again. Verse 27, 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus is telling the crowd here that they are seeking him for the wrong reasons. They're looking to him for signs. They're looking for him to be the guy who does for them, makes them happy, fills their bellies who feels their physical appetite, but he wants to offer them something different, something better. Yesterday's miracle existed so that he could point them to something else that they could not see. So Jesus moves from their physical need to their spiritual need. And Jesus, in verse 20, 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we accomplish? What should we be doing to say that we're doing the works of God? They don't even know enough to say what must we do to be saved as we find later in the New Testament. They they believe that their faith was proven by what they did. And Jesus said this in verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. See, when they asked Jesus how they should work for God, Jesus said, here's the work of God, believe in me. Working for Jesus does not make Jesus precious to you. Seeking and relating with Jesus makes him precious to you. Being with him, not working for him. How much easier is it to work for Jesus than it is to be with Jesus? Oh, it's so much easier to do things because we can evaluate them so much better. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and if the goal is believe, believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So listen, these people are still looking for a sign from Jesus to prove that he's the son of God. They called him a prophet in verse 14. Jesus just fed them 5,000 men out of just a little bit of food. Just since Jesus said, to prove it, (laughs) what sign do I do? I produced food for at least 5,000 of you yesterday, and you want a sign? Have you forgotten what I did for you yesterday? Well, it doesn't take much to go back in time to remember that every miracle that Moses performed, they needed another miracle as proof. Truth of the matter is, when Jesus is only a teacher, only a prophet, only a miracle worker, Jesus is only as good as his last miracle or wish that he grants. There Jesus is, the answer to all their needs. And they were focused on food. They were focused on their earthly appetites. They were focused only on what they wanted. So much that they couldn't even see him. I mean, with their eyes, yes, but with their faith, no. Their their faith couldn't see beyond their bellies. They couldn't see the connection between Jesus providing bread 
and God the Father providing manna. They mistook their emptiness as hunger when Jesus is trying to show them spiritual emptiness. I think sometimes that's the way it is with us. When, when we have a need, we, we can't focus around it. It's like it consumes us. When you, when you have something going on in your life, it's like it just it consumes us. We aren't disciplined enough to see Jesus around the growl of our bellies. We demand Jesus to meet whatever need that we have in that moment. Or we don't expect Jesus to do anything at all. But all we're focused on is the need. All we're focused on is how we feel. The emptiness. But the emptiness, if we learn anything from here, it's the emptiness exists to show us something else, something greater. Jesus always uses the emptiness to point to something greater. Their un, un, misunderstanding was clouded by unbelief. Although if you'd have asked them, are you the people of God? They would have wholeheartedly said yes. But Jesus was ready to help them and to show them what they Thought they needed points to what their really need is. Let's pick back up at verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. I'm inflecting my voice in a way that may not reflect Jesus. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. I mean, Jesus said, Don't give Moses credit for manna. My Father gave you manna from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying, you're in the right place, but you're asking for the, the wrong thing. You don't see that you have a greater need than bread. Needing me for stuff is not the answer. Because tonight you will be hungry again. Your spirit is dead and your soul is hungry. And you're worried about your body. You need someone to satisfy your soul and bring resurrection to your dead spirit. And only I can do it, but you can't even see it because you're so focused on your physical life. Now, I want you to think about it for a moment. How much of our prayer, how much of our concern, how much of our worry revolves around this? And here, that's how you begin to know that you're slipping into a be good, good things happen kind of a faith. As God made it clear in the Old Testament, he's making it clear here. Our faith is not about receiving what our belly wants. It's about learning to recognize spiritual emptiness and his provision for it. There is no eternal satisfaction found in settling for only having physical needs met. We have those, he often meets them but they point to a greater need and a greater feeling. Identity is a huge thing in our culture today. Everybody wants to know who are my people? Where do I belong? Who, lots and lots of questions about our, our belonging. And the truth of the matter is that emptiness of that fear of loneliness, those, those senses of I don't, these are not my people, kind of where do I belong? Who can I trust? Those are temporary, but they point to a greater 
We should find our identity in Jesus Christ alone. And that then begins to inform everything about us. Right? Learning, learning how to drive the things that we feel every day into the promises of the Savior that we say we believe. But those long-term answers don't help how I feel this moment. I need to feel better now. And if God really loved me, he'd help me now. Because I demand it. If we treat Jesus like he's a, only a conduit to channel God's blessing, then he became, becomes just one of the places that we go to get our bellies full, our needs met. And then we can get back to our regular lives again, well, until we get hungry again, because that, that wave just keeps washing ashore. And when we live this way, then our faith is driven not by our love for Jesus or our desire to be with Jesus, but by our selfish appetites. If we're focused on our real eternal needs and realize that the eternal blessing is in Jesus, then Jesus himself is the source of our life. So when the angels came to the shepherds and says, you know, for you, we bring good news of great joy. What they were bringing wasn't just news. Jesus is the good news. Not the story of Jesus. Not what Jesus would do for them. Jesus' presence is the good news. Jesus' arrival on the scene is the good news. Jesus is the gospel. Not just the gospel isn't something he preaches. He is the good news. He doesn't just bring it. He is it. Good news isn't about Jesus. It is Jesus. Verse 34, and they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. We want it in our pocket. Well, that's not the way manna worked. I mean, again, you don't have to have, be an Old Testament scholar to know that manna comes, you get up in the morning and manna's there, right? You pick it up. You can't keep it for tomorrow because maggots will get in it. It's not usable for tomorrow. Go back and read some of that. It's really, really clear how manna works. Pick it up for today. Manna is for today, not for tomorrow, except on the Sabbath day. Then you can pick it up for the next day. It's quite miraculous how God uses the manna. So, sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I, and I would think that these people of God would get it. I would think that they would go, oh, connecting all the dots to the manna. i got to have a daily relationship with Jesus. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus daily. He is my life daily. i got to be tapping into Jesus daily. And if I'm not, I'm not living. It turns to selfishness. Life has a way of turning it into maggots if it's not fresh every day. But I said to you that you have seen me and you don't believe. You, you said, what must we do? I said, believe, you don't believe. Verse 37, and all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, just like the manna did. 
Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that is given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. When, when the people said, we want this bread always, Jesus said, I am, I am the bread and I will always be available. Well, John, John 6 is full of Old Testament reminders, right? Speci- specifically, like Exodus language, Exodus 16. And, uh, you know, in, in fact, Jesus in, in uh, John 6, 35 says, I am. That goes back to Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. He claims, uh, you know, who, who should I tell Pharaoh has sent me? Tell him I am who I am. Here Jesus is claiming that same name. And he is God without beginning and end and eternal and changing the source of life, not just sent from the Father, but God himself. And if Jesus used this phrase only once, then we might would say, well, it's probably limited language. But Jesus uses this all the time. Jesus is walking on the water and they look out and they think Jesus is a ghost and Jesus just looks at him and says, in the original language, it doesn't say this way in English, but Jesus looks at him and says, I fear not, I am. Imagine how powerful that is to use the name of the Father in that moment, I am. Over and over, no less than seven times Jesus uses this. So Jesus knows exactly what he's doing by taking the name of the eternal God to himself and they hear it. And if you scan across John 6, you're going to find a lot of things that remind you about something ancient, a throwback familiarity. Jesus has just crossed the sea to the other side. There's been an amazing sign of God's providing sustenance. There's great crowds of people. He goes up on the mountain. It's actually the Passover. He goes into the wilderness. He's surrounded by people and they're concerned about more provision of food. And Jesus has just provided for them. And it doesn't take a great Bible scholar to be able to see these connections to Moses leading God's people out of slavery, promising if they would believe they could get to the promised land. You remember when God was setting his people free from slavery. He brought them out not only from slavery, but into, the goal was into a relationship. Get them out of Egypt into a relationship with him. I will be your God and you will be my people. This was their greatest need. Okay, I'm gonna meet your physical need. We'll get you out of Egypt. But you have a greater need. Out of slavery wasn't the goal. Into him was the goal. Remember? So as we begin to pray, I want us to think about that same thing. Out of of slavery isn't the goal. Into him is the goal. Out of your problem isn't the goal. Into him is the goal. You're you're going to keep running into problems the rest of your life. The goal isn't problem-free living. The goal is into him. Jesus, I mean, it's just so funny to me how here we are again. And Jesus is using bread to symbolize their great need. It's a sign that Israel definitely picked up on was the manna. What work? What sign? Our fathers received manna. (laughs) 
I mean, this was like an over-the-top. I mean, they're expecting more than this, right? Our fathers received manna. Well, now if you don't, go back to Exodus chapter 16 and in verse 15. You don't have to turn over there, but I'm going to read it. When the people of Israel saw it, the manna, for the first time, they said to one another, what is it? They didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now, in Hebrew, the word manna means, what is it? What is it? We don't know what it is. What's the bread the Father has sent for you to eat? Moses told them that. Moses told them that. It's the bread that the Lord has given you. And a thousand years later, they said, Moses gave us the bread from heaven. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. Moses himself told you that the Father has given you bread to eat. And what is it called? Manna. What is it? Our forefathers got manna. Jesus said, what is it? I am. He is the sign of God's provision. Spiritual. And they can't, they can't see it, just like they couldn't see the manna. <laughs> was a sign of God's provision. Well, we want quail. Well, yeah, I don't know what manna tastes like, but I've had quail. It's good. Jesus is not going to bring a sign. Listen, I, and I, and this, this idea of, Ameri of what, whatever it is, and I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing America. I'm bad-mouthing American Christianity because I don't think it's very close to the original. So I'm going to say this. A lot of people pray for signs. You want a sign? Look at the cross. That's the sign. If you want another sign greater than that, there doesn't one exist. Jesus is the sign. Jesus is not offering a sign. He is the sign. He's not going to bring a sign. He is the sign. Jesus is saying, your father said, what is it? The manna of their fathers pointed to the bread of life. Jesus is saying, what is it? I am. It's not simply reminding them. It's a culmination. Exodus now all of a sudden is the shadow and Jesus is the light. It was true then and it's true now. Jesus did not come into the world mainly to give bread. Jesus came into the world to be bread. We often come to Jesus for what we can get out of him. I guess forgetting that he went to the cross. But the problem with this mentality is that God is not a mere helper to make our lives better. He is our life. Don't forget that when you go to work tomorrow. Don't forget that when you turn on the radio or the TV and we're slowly slipping away from thus saith the Lord. He is worthy to exchange your life for his life. Jesus didn't come to earth to meet earthly desires. Jesus come to change our earthly desires. So I want you to consider your relationship with Jesus. This, this very moment, I want you to examine the value that he is. 
Is Jesus merely useful? Is your faith an obligation, an opportunity? Is it a burden? Or do you see Jesus as the treasure of your life? This isn't Sunday school. This isn't children's church. Don't give me the answer you think you should give. Evaluate your life. Is Jesus your treasure? That every other treasure gets behind. The amount of time you spend with him, understanding him, drawing off of him for your life and your sustenance, digesting him, that, that is how you determine his value. If Jesus is the bread of life, nothing else can be. The good life is not found in possessions or circumstances, but in his presence. It's not something that he gives. It's something that he is and something that you have when you are in him and he in you. Manna provided temporary physical satisfaction. But Jesus declares that he is the product of which the sign pointed. Eternal satisfaction. Not, not a one-time eating, but an ongoing life. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. You have an ongoing relationship with bread. You should have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. You consume him. You walk in him. Jesus, listen, we can't reduce our faith. Jesus isn't a means to an end. His promises begin and end with his presence. This was a hard teaching for them to get. I mean, Jesus just all of a sudden, man, he was a great miracle worker there for a minute, and now all of a sudden he's talking about eating him. <laughs> Jesus is saying he's a, gift, he's a gift greater than the gifts given by Moses. They, they just couldn't get it. And by the way, these are the two words that got Jesus killed. I am. Closing in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, they wanted what Jesus offered. They didn't want Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve... Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have exchanged our life for yours. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I think Peter is saying, this is a hard teaching for us too. And we have considered where else to go. 
Where else should we go? The commitment to Jesus is really high when he gives people what they want. But a lot of people turn away when he reveals his identity and he calls for their life and surrender. It's not being good. It's not being favored in this world. It's not an easy life, not perfect circumstances, not comfort, not happiness. Jesus. Allowing Jesus to be the provider and the sustainer of all things. So who is Jesus to you? An advice giver? A relationship restorer? A means to an end? A heaven, not a hell? Or is he the bread of life? The thing that we have an ongoing relationship with where we're drawing our identity from him. Let's uh, close our eyes, Ballard. Stand with me if you would too, please. As we, uh, as we close this morning, I want to ask you to do a little bit of homework. Just take a moment. And I want you to think about if Jesus is the bread of life, there can be no other. There can be no other. What in your life takes up space if you're concerned? And what earthly desires do you spend your life mulling over? What are your fears? What are your feelings? What are your hopes? If you could have, if, if Jesus never gave you another thing, is he still enough? If he never gave you another thing, is he still enough? And whatever, whatever it is that keeps getting in front of Jesus to bring you hope or to bring you joy or to bring you satisfaction, today is the day to send it to the back of the line. So I want you just to very quickly identify in your life the things that crowd out Jesus from being enough. You may be here today and not be a follower of Jesus Christ. I didn't say a believer in his existence, but someone who has truly given their identity in exchange for his. Somebody's truly walking with Jesus as the sole provider of life and being satisfied by that. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, 
I want you to make that decision today. I want you to lay aside whatever need you think you have and see Jesus. I want to be able to, to pray with you today or have somebody, somebody will pray with you today to be able to know for a fact that you're walking in Christ, receiving the perfect gift from the Father that sustains our, our life and our living. Chris, let's sing together. If you know that you need to make that decision today, will you, will you please come? And just pour your heart out. If something, if something is in your way between you and Jesus, will you, will, you just, will you just come and give it to him? Somebody will pray with you. If you're not a Christian today, I beg you today to receive Jesus as your savior. There are a lot of people who follow Jesus who walk away when things get tough. Today, I'm asking you to step in, to lay your fears down, to lay down your growling bellies and to be satisfied with Jesus. I don't, I don't know for certain. I read um, the Gospels and you, know, you feel like you kind of know Jesus' personality a little bit, so I don't, I don't know this, but I think you know, the, <laughs> Jesus is pouring himself and revealing himself to people. It's just come through a significant, you know, this spiritual high of feeding 5,000, the accolades that come with that. And I'm not saying that Jesus got caught up in all that. But the next day, more. Jesus gives them more himself. And they all walk away. And the 12, you know, you can imagine Jesus. Are you going to walk away too? And when Peter ends, he says, you are the Holy One from God. And I imagine just a little just a little satisfaction in knowing that somebody gets it. And this morning, I just pray that we get it. Lord, we thank you that you have proven to us many, many times over that you are enough. You are the life giver. You are the sustainer. You are the what is it that we're, that we're craving. And yet sometimes we still want quail. Lord, help us to remember that today that anything we want more than you leads us to death. And it may be a slow death, but it's death in the end. Help us, Lord, to be satisfied with life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.